Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to today's Dunn Solutions podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today, we'll hear from Ron Spillers with West Coast Decks. Ron and his business partner, Joel, have built over 2,000 decks in the Pacific Northwest. In this podcast, Ron will share the design elements that can trigger the need for a building permit and the code compliance that can come along with that. Ron will also cover the following. Which construction details are likely to require the services of a qualified structural engineer? He will cover the evolution of manufactured decking from an invention by Mobile Oil in the 90s to the place we are today. Ron will explain how sloping property can significantly impact your project plans and delay the process of procuring a permit. And he will discuss redecking strategies, maintenance recommendations, and the area required if you want to enjoy a table and chairs on your deck. If you have additional questions for Ron, please go to westcoastdecks.com. And for information on future industry events, you can email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. First off, thanks to Dunlumber for doing this, uh, allowing me to share a little bit of information I've gained over the years about deck design, deck building. Uh, Dunn has been a huge part of our success at West Coast Decks. Uh, we started our company in 1989. Thank you, sir. Uh, started our company in 1989. Prior to that, uh, my business partner, Joel, and I worked together from 1981 at a company called Weather Decks in Bellevue, which did uh, waterproof deck surfacing. I had my own waterproof deck surfacing company in Portland for three years, and then we started decks by JRW in 1989. I had my hat on because they told me there'd be photographs and I didn't want the flash to bounce <laughs> off. Um, since 1989, we focused on design and construction of what we refer to as conventional decks versus waterproof decks. Waterproof decks are decks that would be over a living area, decks where water can't go through but rather goes off the edge of the deck or into a drain. A conventional deck is what you're looking at here, a deck with spaces between the boards where water can go through. Uh, so we specialized in that, started in 1989. We thought it would be a fun thing to do for three or four or five years, and here we are, 27 years later. Uh, it's been a great career. It's been a lot of fun. Our specialty has been residential decks, folks just like you. Uh, we don't work for builders. We like to get paid, no offense. Uh, but uh, the residential deck market in uh, Seattle, as you know, every home has a deck. So it's, it's been wonderful for us. We've really enjoyed it. We've seen tremendous changes in the industry from the time we got started. Uh, back up a little bit, when we first started, our lumber yard was a, a place in Bellevue called Tumalum Lumber. And there was a little yard there in Bellevue, which is now, I think, a Mercedes dealership. And it was just the two of us. We started off, we would build decks during the day, do estimates in the afternoons, and do the books at night, your basic two-man operation. As we grew, Tumalum Lumber uh, went out of business there, although we were going really well. We went to Dunn Lumber, and uh, in Bellevue, and we said, guys, we're, we're a growing company. We'd be very interested in uh, having you guys as our sub main supplier. And we told them what we'd be doing as far as volume goes, and they laughed, and they laughed. And we went out and did it. And the next year, we actually exceeded what we had uh, told them we were going to do. So uh, we became very good business partners. And as I said, they, were, they have been a huge part of our success. Their quality of product is unmatched. Uh, believe me, I've looked at wood or any other kind of building materials at other locations, other vendors over the years, never found anything as good as what Dunlumber carries, nor have I ever found the level of service from anyone else that we as a, a contractor get from Dunlumber, and I know you as homeowners and retail customers get the same thing from these guys, so at all of their stores. So can't say enough about the operation. They've been great for us and a great partner to be with. I assume you're all here to hear something about decks. Anyone interested in anything other than decks? Nothing? Okay. Perfect. And I think I came to the right place. Um, and I assume also that most of you are well, do-it-yourselfers, any professionals in here tonight, professional contractors, okay? So you're, you're interested in how a deck design comes together for your home, I would assume, or a relative. We'll talk about uh, things to look for when we're designing a deck. Uh, to get the most out of it. Uh, we'll talk about different products that are available for decks. We'll talk about some code requirements, of which there are <laughs> many, uh, regarding decks and have gotten more and more stringent over time. And then, uh, like I say, I like to keep it kind of informal. Uh, if I'm talking about something, you get a, a something, a question, 
or a little more detail about what I'm referring to, just please stop me. We'll go off on some tangent and, and then come back hopefully to home base. Designing decks, so probably the, the first thing to consider <coughs> when uh, you're looking to put a deck on your home is the height off the ground, believe it or not. Most decks you're going to come out of your door, of your sliding door, your swing door, French doors, whatever, and you don't generally want to step down if you can avoid it. So that threshold of the door is what we call deck level. That's what we refer to as deck level, the threshold of the door. But generally the deck would go just right underneath the bottom of the threshold. Doesn't want to be obviously be above it, but it can be below it, even an inch or two, no big deal. So that's where your starting point is. Next thing is Mother Earth. What's going on on the ground where you're going to put your deck? Does the ground slope up as it goes away from the house? Does it slope down as it goes away from the house? Relatively flat, what's on the ground? The first thing about, we'll start at the low level deck and work up. The lowest a deck should get to the ground, in my opinion, is seven inches. And seven inches allows you to have two by six pressure treated framing material, two by six joists, and then the decking board on top of those. So you get five and a half plus inch, half, six and a half, call it seven inches. So that's what we'd like to tell people is as uh, low as we like to go. So if you have a concrete pad out your back door and you're going to come out your slider, if you step down at least seven or more inches, you can build your deck right over the top of that concrete slab. As the further up you go, things start to change dramatically. In particular, having to do with how the deck is framed, supported, and then once you get to a certain height, uh, code requirements kick in. Now, codes, uh, uh, requirements, and building departments are the bane of my existence. Um, they're, they're all different by design. When I say all the jurisdictions are different by design, so there's no real hard and fast rule that will apply for everybody. Uh, and it, it's also a moving target. If you've ever, anybody ever dealt with a building department besides me? <laughs> yeah, okay, say no more. Um, in city of Seattle, for the as, as the last time I checked, uh, if the deck surface is 18 inches or more off the existing grade or the ground around the deck, then it triggers the need for a building permit, believe it or not, and also triggers the need for conformance to what's called setbacks. Your property, whatever the shape of it is, has invisible lines so far from each side of your property line that's referred to as a setback. It's usually shown on your building plan as a dashed line. And it could be on the backyard where most decks are going to be built, it could be as little as five feet, could be as much as 30 feet. And of course, we're, we're limiting our conversation here to a level lot, relatively level lot. So if your deck is 18 inches or more off the ground, technically speaking, you're supposed to get a permit in the city of Seattle. Most other jurisdictions, it's 30 inches or more off the ground. Requires you to get the permit and again also setbacks kick in. Now, just a note about setbacks is you can't cross that dashed line with a deck that's greater than 18 inches in Seattle, 30 inches in other jurisdictions because it's now what we call non-conforming. So if, you're, if you've got a small backyard or you want to build a big deck or your lot's funny shape and you want to go close to your property line, be sure you're under that 18 in Seattle, 30 everywhere else, and then you can go right up to the property line if you wish. I've asked a couple of building officials what, why that is, why do we have to keep the decks um, inside uh, the setbacks, and the, the answer was primarily having to do with um, easements and accesses. They want to be able, if they need to get between property, they need to do that, but also the other answer, which I thought was kind of interesting, so you don't want someone building a five-foot deck off the ground right up to the fence and standing there looking down at their neighbor's backyard area. So it kind of makes sense, I guess. So check your setbacks if your deck is more than 30 off the ground. Also, when your deck becomes more than 30 off the ground, the need for a guardrail kicks in. So anything 30 inches or more off the ground requires a code guardrail. Uh, what I mean by a code guardrail, it has to be 36 inches high minimum and it can have no opening greater than, greater than four inches. So if I have a four inch grapefruit in my hand, I can't push it through the rail. If I can, it does not meet code. And I'm sure you've seen rails on decks around town where the openings are like this. You wonder, how does that happen? Well, they don't drive around and make you change it if they see it, but if you're rebuilding it, they're gonna make you bring it to code. Uh, one last note on permits, if you do want to get a permit, buckle up. It's, it's quite a process these days. 
Um, most of the jurisdictions have a lot of online help that you can get of what they're going to want to see. Uh, two things, though, that you should know about uh, that's just really transpired in the last five years or so, and that is the code requirements on two aspects of the deck have become very, very stringent, and I mean very stringent. One is the attachment of the rail to the deck. The way the Universal Building Code has been written forever and ever is that a guardrail is supposed to withstand 200 pounds per square foot lateral load. In other words, 200, 200 pounds coming at it like that per square foot. That's a bunch. That's a lot of weight. They've, some university back east had a lot of time on its hands four or five years ago, and they did the calculations of what it would take to stop 200 pounds, and they came up with the fact that the way deck rails were built today, probably none of them would have done it. Although you never saw people falling off decks, you never saw railings falling off deck. Well, you never saw people falling in a railing and falling off deck because the way we were doing it, we being the industry, was fine. If you, if you secured the rail into the deck where the manufacturer recommended on a manufactured rail or the wood post rail, if you blocked it down into the framework, it was fine. But now when you go in to get that permit, they're going to want to see probably engineering on your rail system and how it's attached to your deck to comply to that 200 pound load. So when I would say buckle up, I mean it. You may have to get a professional architect or a professional structural engineer involved and have them draw the detail of how your rail is going to be attached. The second one is how is the deck attached to the house? When we build a deck, usually it attaches to the house. We do build freestanding decks that are out in the yard somewhere or we build decks that are right next to the house, you just don't want them attached to the house for whatever reason. If you attach the deck to the house and you flash it properly, it's never going to be a problem. The problem is when someone just slaps the deck up against the siding, nails it up there, over time water gets between what's called the ledger board, which is the board that attaches to the deck, and the siding and rots everything out. So you have to stop that water intrusion with metal flashing. But the attachment of the ledger board as we referred to is the board that you attach to the house. That attachment has become crazy silly. Back in the day, we knew that if we nail those ledger boards up with 16D nails, flathead nails, it would, and we put them, spaced them six, eight inches apart and two or three or four, depending on the size of the ledger board, that thing's not going anywhere. I mean, try to pull it off. But the, 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 the more decks that have been built, and this is my opinion, the decking industry has seen such amazing growth due to, uh, I believe, the advent of manufactured decking. And suddenly, we have low maintenance decking options at our disposal. Everybody now wants one. So more and more decks are built. The, the industry started to grow. We even have our own magazine called Deck Builder Magazine. Um, so it's a higher profile item. And when it got to be a higher profile item, they, the manufacturers of uh, fasteners that hold everything together uh, and building departments got, got together and said, we've got to make these things stronger. When a deck falls, it doesn't go like that. It goes like that. It pulls away from the building. And usually what happens, you've heard of these in the news, usually what happens, there's a party, somebody sees something shiny outside and everybody rushes outside onto the deck to see it. The deck is poorly attached to the house on that momentum pulls the deck away and down she goes. So the connection of the deck to the house is, is as I said, silly stringent now. Um, you can have it engineered. You can have a structural engineer. Uh, uh, what we do is we use a, a product called Ledger Lock, which you can buy right here at your Dunn Lumber Store. There are special bolts that go into the ledger board and into the framework of the house. And they hold that deck to within code requirements if they're properly spaced and installed. But you have to have a structural engineer do what's called the calculator. There we go. This is my beautiful assistant. Uh, uh, you have to have a structural engineer uh, prove to the building department that that will work. Even though the company that makes them provides that engineering, they want it for every specific deck. Did I mention it was kind of silly? Uh, the other way to do it, uh, that what we call prescriptive. Uh, prescriptive methods uh, for, code, for code requirements are what the building department suggests you do. 
and they can provide you drawings of prescriptive techniques. And the prescriptive technique now also involves a metal connector, um, there we go, <laughs> right there, that uh, attaches to the house and bolts to the joist. Originally, and they've gotten a lot better, the, the first ones you had a plate that attached, boy she's good, plate that attached to the joist and a rod that actually went through the wall of the house and attached to the inside of the floor framing. How did you get there was my question. How do we get to this plate inside on a retrofit deck? On a new home, easy squeezy. Yeah, and then there's would be a rod that would go through the wall. Uh, on a retrofit situation, we actually had to cut the ceilings. Cut a hole in the ceilings, get up in there and attach these brackets. That's when the light bulb went off for me and I said, I'm gonna have an engineer engineer the ledger locks for me. So I don't have to do that. So those two things, deck attachment to house, rail attachment to deck, be prepared to give them a, a, a pint of blood for that information. Um, other than that, they're, they're, they're pretty straightforward when it comes to decks. And again, we're only talking decks off the ground. The higher up you go, the more complex the project is. If you're getting six to eight feet off the ground, I highly recommend you either hire an engineer or a contractor such as myself uh, or um, an architect to design it for you and perhaps even build it for you. We offer something that uh, not a lot of guys offer, but we offer a, what's called a frame only package where if you're building a deck up off the ground, we could come in and provide the labor materials to build the framework. You could go buy your own decking products, put them on yourself. You could buy your own railing products, put those on, and it's a considerable savings. And again, it's the old adage, build on a firm foundation. If you get a good framework up there, that's not gonna move laterally, which is if I'm the house, and I am big as a house, if I'm the house, you don't want the deck to move this way, that's that attachment to the house, nor do you want it to move this way, which is lateral. And again, the code requirements to stiffen that deck so it doesn't move left to right uh, have become even more stringent. Now you've seen uh, what we call knee braces, where you have a, a post going to the ground, the deck's up here, and you've got this angled piece here. That's called a knee brace. And I look to see those requirements get even more stringent as time goes on. Because again, if they're not properly done, that deck can wiggle. And anytime a deck wiggles, it's starting to pull loose the connectors all over the place. Deck failure is very, very rare uh, these days, especially. But there's still some, some folks out there that don't adhere. Just nail it up and away you go. Don't recommend it. There's a lot of good deck building guides online. I mean, my goodness, there's tons of them. A lot of good, uh, you guys still have the publications here? How, basic deck construction, that sort of thing? No, you should have them. What happened to them? They're all online? They're all online, okay. Or call me. Yes. Yeah, every city has a website. A lot of them, especially on the east side, are combining into something called mybuildingpermit.com. And again, you'll find all the requirements, what you need to submit for a permit. You'll find what they want to see on the drawings, the procedure, um, all this good stuff. But, and I have found as a homeowner, they're going to be a lot more forgiving, if you will, uh, when you go in to apply for your permit than they will for a contractor. They expect us to have everything in a row. Again, the higher up you go, the, 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 the more complex the deck is as far as structure support, stability. The slope of your lot plays a big factor in how that deck is built. Starting from the ground up, we have what's called footings. And we can either use precast footings, precast concrete pier blocks, they're referred to. Most professionals, such as ourselves, we actually dig and pour concrete in our footings. Our footings are generally 20 inches by 20 inches by at least 18 inches. We dig a flat hole. We don't dig a conical hole. We dig a squared off flat hole. Pour the concrete. There's a, what's called a metal post base. A post base that goes down into the concrete and that's your footing. There you go. Perfect. All, all, all metal, by the way, as, uh, just reminded me as you held that up, all the metal that comes in contact with the pressure treated framing of the deck has to be now what's called, well, one of the brand names is Z-Maxed. What it means is triple galvanized. Reason being, years ago, 
correct me if I'm wrong, uh, pressure treated lumber did not have a lot of copper. It had some, but it also had just a smidgen of arsenic in it. And of course, somebody got hold of that and the industry had to change, get rid of that arsenic. Well, to get rid of it, they increased the copper. And by increasing the copper, the copper had a reaction with regularly galvanized metal and caused it to create this white powder, which is first stages of rust. So the manufacturer jumped on that and said, well, we'll just triple galvanize it up the price and away we go. So everyone was happy. Slope of the ground, talk about footings. If your deck is on flat ground, you can use pier block footings. I suggest if you're using precast pier block footings that you do dig a hole, pour some concrete down in and then set the pier block on that. Don't just set it on the ground because the ground, we get a little water now and then and the ground can erode underneath that and now you got a problem. As you go on a steeper slope and you've got uh, post supports and footings coming down, those footings now have to be deeper. They have to go down further in the ground, even up to a point where a special type of footing is required, referred to as a pin pile. You will never get involved in this, believe me, but a professional will come in and drive pipe into that steep slope. One usually goes straight down. Another one usually goes at an angle, at an angle so that that pipe is driven into the native soil below and it stops anything from going down that hill. So each footing now will have two pipes sticking out of the ground that are cut off and that concrete is poured around them. It's called a pen pile footing. We do a, a lot of them because we have a lot of decks we build on slope lots. One more word about slope lots. Um, the whole ball game changes as far as what you can or can't do with your property. City of Seattle, it's referred to as ECA, Environmentally Critical Area, and usually determined by the slope of the lot. If you have an environmentally critical area and you're wanting to build anything, certainly a deck on that, and you go to the building department, the duck's gonna come down and everybody's gonna get excited. And you can plan on now spending 10 to 12 weeks at best getting your permit. Uh, there's all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. Um, other jurisdictions, so I like to use Bellevue as an example. If you've got a steep slope on your lot, uh, one of the things that will trip you up is, is what's called lot coverage. Your lot has X number of square feet on it. You're allowed to occupy a percentage of that square footage with structure. Bellevue takes that sloped area and discounts it. It's like it's not even there, even though you're paying tax on it. So if your lot is flat and then it slopes, when they calculate the square footage, they're using this portion only. And so most houses are already over their allotment as they sit. And I can't tell you how frustrating this big, beautiful home up uh, overlooking Lake Sammamish. You can see the whole lake from one end to the other. Big development there called Skyview. Builder, for whatever reason, when they built it in the 70s, put a very small deck on it. All, like, all the fellow wants to do is increase the size of his deck. He's not going any closer to the slope than the house already is. Can't do it. Just absolutely no way he can do it because uh, he's already over. And that, that's maddening. And, and like I say, so it's timing, it'll take a long time, and then the construction procedure changes because then we're, now we're dealing with usually fill soil or we want to get those pipe footings in. Your framing coming up from your footings is ground, what's called, called ground contact pressure treated lumber. Never mind. I'm not going to ask you around and get a two by 10. Uh, if you look at pressure treated lumber, it's got what we call incising marks, what little, it looks like little cut marks or staple marks in the board. What that is, is they've taken a board such as a piece of hemlock, piece of fur, and they've run it through the machinery that puts those little holes in it, and then they take that board and they put it in a vat of treatment, liquid treatment, and they pressurize it to force that liquid into the board. And with those little holes in it, it allows the liquid to be forced further into the board. If you see a treated board that doesn't have the little incising marks in it, generically that's referred to as appearance grade treated lumber. Sunwood, outdoor wood are brand names you may hear. Those appearance grade are used on structures that you're going to see, such as a trellis, a privacy screen, uh, that sort of thing. Underneath the deck, you want the ground contact because the, the protection is soaked further in the board. If you cut a piece of ground contact lumber and look at the end of it, you'll see that that liquid is soaked in almost all the way. If you take a piece of appearance grade that all they've done now is put that board in and pressurized it, you cut the board, you'll see a layer around the outside. It's kind of like a piece of smoke ring on a piece of barbecue, if anyone knows barbecue. 
but it hasn't penetrated really deep. So you don't want to use that in a real wet environment close to the ground. Uh, Pressure-treated framing, support posts, the, the uh, girders or beams, the joists coming out from the building, um, all ground, ground contact pressure-treated. Again, refer to your construction guides. My partner Joel, by the way, uh, was supposed to be here, but he's deathly sick today, and his wife would not let him out of the house. So he actually focuses more on our construction side, our, our production, if you will, and he's always been the better carpenter than me. I fortunately have all mine, but he's much better at that. He was going to talk a little bit about construction, so I'll answer any questions about that, but I'm not going to go into depth. And then you have your decking surface. That is where things start to get fun. Uh, we have at our disposal the choice of either any kind of natural wood uh, that's available in area. The most prevalent, best-selling, I would assume, would be cedar. Western red, tight knot cedar, uh, probably the least expensive of the decking boards, beautiful wood, easy to work with. Uh, then we have what we would generically refer to as manufactured decking, artificial decking, used to be called composite. I'm going to give you a real brief history on composite decking here. Then you have also hardwood decking, things like Ipe, um, mahoganies. Uh, there are some hardwood deckings with names I cannot pronounce that come from Trinidad and all over the world. And these hardwoods are gorgeous. They're kind of difficult to work with. They're a little, they're a little finicky because uh, you do have to move boards around. You did not, believe it or not, I know everything from Dunlumber is straight as narrow, but every once in a while you get one that's got a little curvature to it and you've got to do something about that. And the hardwoods are really tough to work with. If you're working with hardwoods, you need to wear a respirator when you're cutting it. The sawdust that comes off of these hardwoods is toxic, or not toxic, but can irritate your breathing. Cedar, on the other hand, simple deal. Easy to work with, less expensive. Um, and then in between, we have the manufactured decking products. The manufactured decking products started in, in 19, about the time we started our company, 1989, a company by the name of Trex, bought the patent from Mobile Oil to make what's called a composite deck board. And the process was they would take recycled wood, generally from the hardwood flooring or the furniture industry, the scraps, and they would grind it up into a powder, almost like flour. They would also take recycled plastics. Uh, you, you may have remembered this, uh, milk cartons, uh, grocery bags. They sourced it from all over the world. And then they took the plastics and they ground those up into a powder. Then they put the two together in a really hot machine and they squeezed it out the other end like a tube of toothpaste into what looked like a board. That was called composite decking, and it was, it was revolutionary. Um, initially, there were issues. Mainly the issues were, uh, from our standpoint, was the inconsistency of the boards. They weren't uniform in their width or their thickness, so you'd have two boards come together, one's wider than the other. It was kind of maddening. Uh, thickness is the same thing. You have one board that was taller than the other. Um, it was brand new process, so everyone was starting to work it out. Uh, Trex was kind of the bell cow for a long time. Other manufacturers jumped on board. I think, in, if I remember right, in 1998, there were over 60 to 80 companies manufacturing deck boards. There were four or five right here in Seattle. And not all of them survived. Uh, a lot of different iterations came along, a hollow board, what we call engineered boards, uh, you name it. On the consumer side of things, the benefit was you didn't have to put any kind of protective oil or protective stain on this board. The downside, as they found out as they got to the market, is very easy to stain. If you picked up a piece of composite decking back in the day and looked at it, you could actually see the little flecks of wood in the board. And so it was the wood that you spilled your red wine on it would stain. Also from uh, organic growth would cause those wood particles to stain. Really tough to clean out because it's soaked down in there. Uh, the board faded. Uh, didn't matter what color you picked originally, they all turned gray. Then they started getting different colors in and they would lose 15 to 25% of their color. And what, what that meant was if you ever had to replace a composite board, your new board looked really different from the rest of them. Thirdly, the color fast, or not the color fastness, but the color matching of the boards was really bad. Manufactured decking then and today comes in 12, 16, and 20 foot lengths. And at, back in the day, if you had a, uh, some 12 foot boards here in, in a Trex gray, 
and some 16 foot boards here in Trex gray, they were not the same gray. They looked different. So if you mix them on the deck, so you get this multicolored deck. So we figured out pretty quickly that wasn't supposed to be the case because with wood, you order random links. When you're going to order cedar, you order 8s, 10s, 12s, 16s, 18s, whatever the lumberyard has, and you put joints where the two boards come together around the deck, usually in a random fashion. Did that with the early composites, again, you had this multicolored deck. So what we came up with was the idea of what's called using a divider board, where we took the deck and we, we put a, a board in the middle that ran 90 degrees to the house, so we could get all 12 footers on one side and all 12 footers on the other side, we get them from the same batch. And Dunlumber was kind enough to make sure we got everything from the same batch because they knew we were going to bring them back if it didn't match. And we continue that to today, even though today it's no longer a concern, but people like the way it uh, looks. And I, we don't have an overhead projector, but I do have my computer here, so when we break or end, we can flip through some pictures and I can show you more of what I'm talking about. Composite decking continued to get better and better and better. More companies got involved, the technology improved. Uh, companies like Fiberon, uh, TimberTech, uh, Azac, and then, and, and then at about, I want to say it was the late 90s that PVC decking came in. Could have been. Up to that point, we had composite decking. It was getting better and better. They, the colors were getting really pretty. Uh, but again, we still had the color loss issue. We had the staining issue. We had the scratching issue. A company by the name of Procell was the one that came along and developed uh, an all-plastic board. Took the wood fiber out of it, made the board out of uh, open-cell uh, plastic. And they, it was referred to in the industry as PVC decking. We still have it. PVC decking, when it came out, the reps would walk around with the board, they'd pour uh, WD-40 on it, they'd pour barbecue sauce on it, wipe it off, it wouldn't stain, wouldn't scratch, unless you really tried. Uh, and the colors were very consistent. Well, they were very boring. It was like light gray, dark gray, brown. Um, but again, that technology continued to develop. So now we had two choices. We had composite and we had PVC. PVC cost a little more, but it was what we call a higher performing, a higher low maintenance board. Um, ultra low maintenance, I believe, is what they referred to it as. So both of them kept continuing. And then I want to say around 2003-ish, 2004, a company by the name of Fibron took their composite board, which was one of the leading boards in the industry, and they put a shell around it. They put a very thin, hard shell around that composite board, and that protected the composite core from the effects of staining, scratching, here we go, etc. So you can see there's a uh, uh, composite board, the core, and then around the outside is this little thin shell, almost like a golf ball or an M&M. When that came on, now composite decking and PVC decking were, in my opinion, equally performing as far as resistance to scratch, stains, etc. And that's where we are today. Somebody comes to me and says, what's the best deck board from a manufactured decking point? My answer is the one you like the look of or the one that fits your budget. Uh, I have found no real performance difference from the least expensive board Dunlumber carries to the most expensive board Dunlumber carries other than color and texture. Performance-wise, cleanability, durability, warranties usually, uh, all that stuff I have found to be really close. And the way I found that is I have a model deck on my home out in, uh, outside of Redmond and I've got almost every product that I use on that deck. It's a big patchwork quilt. And I've got all these decking products, and over the years I've been able to watch them. I've changed them out as, they've, as, as new ones have come along. And I've been able to see how they perform side by side. And it is my opinion, there's no difference in performance. Pick the one you like the look of. Pick the one that fits your budget. You can't go wrong. Yes, sir? Which side goes up on top, the rough one or the smooth one? The one without the sticker on it. The on no, the one without the sticker. Usually, usually the textured side is the one that goes up. Some boards have texture on both sides. Most of them today, though, have an identified side, as I recall. There's like a smooth on one side and a textured on another. It's the textured side that goes up. All you can buy now is the, what we call generically encapsulated composite, wrapped, or PVC. And all the PVCs now are starting to go to a, an encapsulation. Yes? Isn't Trex only three-quarters? Trex only does three sides. Mm -hmm. Some companies do all four. And again, the raging argument, is it necessary? Um, the bottom side of the, again, what this 
what this outer coating is doing is protecting the composite core from the effects of us, sunlight, holding the color fastness, has nothing to do with water. The ends of the boards are cut. The raw composite material is at the ends of the boards. It can get as wet as it wants. It's not going to affect it. Water was never really the issue except really early on in the whole process. Um, so that, that outer shell, why does it need to go on the backside? When you talk to the manufacturers that put it on the backside, they'll give you really good reasons. You talk to the ones that don't, they say it doesn't need to. And I don't think it needs to either. These boards can be screwed down, they can be nailed down, but most people use uh, what's called composite decking screws, special screws made to go into the plastic sized material. When we first started, you ever taken a screw and run it into something plastic and you get what's called that plastic pulls out? We used to call it the volcano effect. Oh, everyone tried everything to get rid of that. We drive the screw in and we pound the living daylights out of it with a hammer to try to flatten it out. It just looked horrible. Finally, someone came up with the idea of a double-headed screw, or excuse me, a double-threaded screw. And so the first thread goes in and bites the joist. The second set of threads reverse and pull that plastic back down in. So now it's a really clean-looking screw. And most of the screws now are color-coordinated to match a lot of the decking. I like screwing decking down simply from the standpoint of if I ever had to replace a board, if I spilled hot briquettes or something I couldn't get out of that board, I could unscrew it and put a new one in. The good news is with encapsulated decking or PVC decking, when you put that new board in, it's going to match the rest of them, even if it's three or four years old, because they don't fade. They come, most of them come with fade and stain warranties. So you can, thank goodness, now we can go out and replace one. We had a tree fall on a deck. We had to go replace half the decking. Couldn't tell we'd been there. Um, you can also use hidden fasteners. One of the samples that go around had a groove in the side of the board. Those are for hidden fasteners. There's clips that would screw down to the joist. The, the clip has a tongue then that fits into that groove. And it's called a hidden fastening system. You guys got any up here? No, I mean any put down. What? Slaggers. Okay. Uh, hidden fastening systems look great. Oh, you're good. Um, However, uh, again, if you ever had to replace the board, they're much easier now than they were. Back in the day, if you had to replace the board using hidden faster systems, you had to go all the way back to the house because they were linked one to the other. Now, I believe some of the systems, you can actually unscrew the hidden faster. It's still really tough to get the new board back in again. So that's why I like screwing down. Also, if you visualize that, that deck board with a clip in it, the deck board is basically floating on the framework. It can move side to side. And one of the reasons Azac, who's specialized, who, brought, who bought Procell, by the way, uh, and became the leader in PVC decking, one of the reasons uh, Azac never made a board with a groove in the side of it is they did not want their boards floating on the framework. They wanted their boards held what's called in tension with screws because the PVC board would move a little bit more. And I think that's still the case today, although there is some hidden fastening systems for the AZAC boards that take a faster in from the side of the board and run the screw in that way. So personal taste, um, I believe you pay a little bit more for hidden fasteners than you do for regular screws, not very much. But if you like that nice clean look, it's a good way to go. Can't use the hidden fasteners on stair treads. Can't use the hidden fasteners on what's called a picture frame board, which is this board that goes around the perimeter of the deck. That's called picture framing. Can't use the hidden fasteners on the divider board, but you can use it everywhere else. Finally, then railings. Uh, we'll come back to all these for questions. Well, then, you can, then you can put your railing on your deck if you, if you need a railing. If your deck is less than 30 inches, you don't need a railing. But what if that deck is 20 inches off the ground? Someone accidentally steps off there, they can twist an ankle or slide a chair off the side of the deck and down they go. Their parties are anything like mine. So what do you do with decks that are under 30 inches where you don't really want to put a railing on? How do you help not have that issue? One of the things I like to recommend is after the deck is finished, go around the perimeter and put a planting bed in. Put some shrubbery. Have some boxwoods or something that maybe stick up a little higher than the deck surface. So it's almost like a natural railing. Your eye sees this is the edge of the deck. Potted plants, another very inexpensive way to what we call identify the traffic lanes off the deck. Set potted plants around, you can move them around, it adds color to the deck, very inexpensive. Built-in benching. 
However, if your deck surface is 20 inches off the ground and you build a bench on that deck, now that bench surface is 38 inches off the ground. And there is going to come a day where they'll make you put a railing on that. The argument was this bench is not intended as a walking surface, but kids love them. And so could be an issue. Right now it's not. Depends on the inspector, I guess I should say. Uh, bench seating, built-in planter boxes. I don't recommend you build a planter box and fill it with dirt. You have to line it with metal if you're going to do that. I recommend you build a box, looks like a planter box, put a false bottom in it, and set potted plants inside of it. Looks just the same. You can change them out. It's never going to rot. Lighting, low-voltage lighting on railings and on planter boxes or bench seats, on stair risers, boom. Uh, big down, and they, you, there's some really neat looking low voltage lighting systems you get. Most of them are LED now, so you almost never have to change the bulb. The old day it was the Malibu lighting, had the grid on it that always got kicked in all the time, had to change the bulb. Uh, so come a long way on that. Um, then when you get higher than that 30 inches, railings. Now same thing applies. We've got wood railings, natural wood railings, <coughs> excuse me, you've got composite railings. Same companies that make the composite decking make composite rails. <coughs> Excuse me, you've got low maintenance metal rails. Most of the time they're powder coated aluminum. Couple companies work with steel. <coughs> Thank you very much. I'm choking up here. <laughs> um, we favor the metal rails. We really like the metal rails. They're, they're usually at a really good price point. The thing I like about them, especially in the darker colors, the balusters are so small that if you have a, a, on your deck, if you have any green behind it, do we have any green in their yard in this area? <clears throat> if you have some green behind it, the dark rail will almost disappear, the metal rail. It'll kind of blend. So I like that a little bit better than the larger profile rails that are going to really, you, that's what you're going to see when you look out, there's a railing. Pardon me. Then lastly, uh, some deck um, accessories like roof covers. Dunn carries a uh, product called Sun Tough, which is an acrylic, lets light through. The acrylic materials, it looks like plastic sheeting. A lot of times it's got a Greco uh, profile to it. <coughs> reason we like to use that for overhead covers is it requires less slope. Well, you need a half inch to the foot slope. So when you attach your roof to the house and you come out 12 feet, you only have to drop six inches. Whereas if you're using roofing to match your house, it's usually a 7-12 pitch. It has to be a lot more severe, so you may bump your head on the outside edge. Plus, the acrylic materials, as I said, let light through, so it doesn't darken the room. Um, any questions on that before I talk a little bit about designing a deck? How to care for manufactured decking. Uh, again, most of it is stain, have stain warranties, stain warranties, fade warranties. <clears throat> that sort of thing, but you're going to get organic growth and our if we stand still long enough It'll grow on us. So what we recommend is uh, first off you got to kill the organic growth So we recommend the use of an algaecide. You guys have uh, some bleach based cleaners. I believe bleach and water one to four uh, Any kind of deck detergent Slather that on there let it sit for a while then power wash it off is the easiest way you want to use common sense with the power washer. You don't want 8,000 PSI and you don't want to get the tip right down on the deck. 2,500 PSI, hold it up very far, you'll be just fine. And that's it. That's the benefit of manufactured decking is you clean it and you're done. And in, in most decks, even the deck on my home where I've got trees that actually overhang the deck, I clean it twice a year and that's it. And that is all there is to it. And that is what makes it so nice. Railings, you generally you can power wash them too. On the top rails, especially ones that have a wide cap on the top, that's where you'll get your organic growth. You'll maybe have to scrub that down a little bit with, again, bleach and water or something like that to kill their organic growth. Soap and water for dirt. What was your question? Regarding do it yourselfers. Yes. So, so you say we have a professional come in to build the support. I lay down the deck myself. How does that affect the warranty or does it? Does it. Doesn't have to be installed by a professional to have the warranty on it. Warranty is on the board. Uh, if you install it improperly and, for example, you have the spacing too far apart, this is what happened a lot when Trex first came out. It was, oh my gosh, I've got to have that. 
And so they would run out and they'd buy tracks and they'd rip the, the old wood off their deck and their joists, everybody know what a joist is? Their joists were too far apart. They needed to be 16 inches on center. A lot of them were 24 inches on center. They put the tracks on it and all of a sudden it's going like that. Or even worse, they would say, okay, goodness gracious, um, needs to be uh, 16 inch on center, mine are 24, so if I put a new one right in the middle, now they're 12, I'm even better. Problem with that was, the two that are on 24 inch center are old, and they have absorbed moisture, they've shrunk and swollen over the years. The new one probably came from an entirely different mill, it's not gonna be the same height. So they put a new one in and it's either higher or lower than this brother's next to it, and again, the decking will contour itself to that. We are uh, asked a lot to do what we call redecking, where someone's got an existing framework's great. Just pull the decking off, put new decking on. Perfect. How old is that framework? 25 years, I think. So let me get this right. You, you want me to put a lot of money on decking on a 25-year-old framework? The cost of the framing material is not that great. It's a very small part of the project. And the labor, if you can imagine, the labor to go in and pull the deck boards off, clean the tops of the joists, put the framework right as far as today's codes go, properly spanned, properly connected, all that good stuff, it's faster to cut it off the house and start again with new, good, fresh, treated lumber. See, that's how you make a sale on framing material. <laughs> yes? I had that question um, from a customer today, yeah. Um, these little fire pits that people mm -hmm. use. You would have to get the so heat. This is on the manufacturer. Beg pardon? Regarding the manufactured uh, decking. Yeah, it, it, yeah absolutely, yes. Uh, you would have to get the heat source pretty close to the manufactured decking to damage, although it's been done. Uh, a barbecue, gas, or charcoal, normal height bar, never going to be a problem. Uh, I do recommend you put one of those charcoal mats down underneath, just just for grease, yeah. make it easier to clean. Um, fire pits, gas fire pits, no problem. Live fire is a problem. Briquettes that spark and all of a sudden the embers go out onto the deck or live fire pyre, live, live fire pit. Um, embers sparking out, even with the screens over them, they can scorch the decking and the manufacturer is not going to stand behind that. Yeah. Actually, one more question, kind of getting to what she's talking about. So, looking at manufactured decking versus natural wood, mm -hmm. expansion, contraction. Uh, expansion, contraction is not really the issue when you're comparing those two. The, the thing that you want to bear in mind is first off, appearance to your eye, which looks better. Uh, some of these manufactured products now, you can't tell from real wood. Uh, Back in the day, you could. So a lot of people still opted for real wood because they liked the way it looked. The maintenance on a wood deck, no matter what type of wood it is, I don't care if it's a hardwood, it's softwood, uh, it comes from a tree and it's now it's dead. If you don't put some sort of penetrating oil, we call it stain, into that wood, it's going to weather, it's gonna turn gray, and it's gonna shorten its life. It's gonna be more susceptible to seasonal changes which causes the board to open and close, more cracks, more fissures in the board. If you clean that deck off, and again, remember, we have to clean anything out of doors, right? So you clean the deck off. Now with a cedar deck, you got to use a little more care. You can't get that pressure washer out there because you can ruin the cedar. So you got to use a lot less pressure or hold it further away, have it professionally cleaned, or get out there and scrub it with scrub brushes and detergents. You got to clean that deck, again, get the organic growth off and reapply that protective oil stain, we recommend with cedar every year for the first five years. Then you can probably skip a year or two or three after that. So that's the biggest factor. That's what drives most people towards manufactured decking is the lower maintenance. But I have had people come to me and say, well, I want a cedar deck. Not only because I like the way it looks, but it's less expensive. Perfect. Here's how you get a no maintenance cedar deck. You hire a company to come in and clean it and seal it for you. Just write a check. <clears throat> and believe it or not, uh, if you have, you find a good company and they come back year after year using their products and their procedures, it gets quicker all the time. The railings are what take the longest wood railings. They'll charge you a lot for those the first time, but those don't need to be sealed every year. 
you can do those every five to seven years because they're vertical. Any flat surface, though, needs to be redone. Next question. I think it dovetailing off what he was saying as far as the expansion and contraction of the wood compared to the composites and planning for that. Is there a big difference between whether it's 90 degrees out summertime, cold in the winter, yeah, the, 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 the bigger temperature changes and or the bigger uh, saturation of moisture and to dryness changes will cause some woods to move a lot more. Outdoor wood, or I refer to as the uh, parents grade treated wood, was used uh, back in the day a lot for decking. And outdoor wood, uh, sun wood, uh, again these were primarily uh, hemlock or fir, come from fir trees and that board would expand and contract quite a bit. And it would move a lot. You'd get a lot of twisting and, and you didn't find a lot of professionals using it. Most professionals, before this came around, most pros were using hardwoods or cedar. So certain types of woods will expand and contract more than others. Cedar's pretty stable. It will grow a little bit, shrink a little bit, but not enough to really cause any problems. The decking, spacing between the decking, we recommend a minimum of one quarter inch so that those whirly gigs and whatnot can be blown out of them again. Uh, what happens if you get the deck boards too close together and you do get any expansion, they close up, then all the debris, tree debris and whatnot gets stuck in that gap. It stays wet all the time and it shortens the life of the board. It will rot sooner because now it's wet all the time. Uh, manufactured decking, uh, again, quarter inch spacing between the boards. Uh, space at the end between the picture frame board and the end of the boards, little gapping. The manufacturer's website have these guidelines on them, tell you how to gap it. But we have found no issues in the last 10 years with uh, too much expansion contraction. The original ones, yep, those first ones that came out, just like that. Yes, sir. Replacing a deck, I've got a deck that's completely collapsed in talking about the gap is so small and they painted it. it was very yeah. My favorite. So trying to just clean it was impossible, it just brought it out. Um, I, want to I want to reuse the footers if possible. What should I be looking for on those footers? How high off the ground is the deck? I want to say maybe 10 inches. Okay, close to the ground. So with a deck close to the ground, you're not as concerned about spreading the footings apart for a great distance because uh, you can put as many of them in as you want. So depending on how many of them are, are there, you'll want to use what's called a span chart that will tell you if it's 10 inches general, usual deck construction, you have what's called the beam, and the beam has posts that go to the ground into the footings. Then the choice, joists sit on top of the beam. So as long as you've got enough room for your beam, let's say you use a four by eight and two by six joist, that's 14 inches, 15 inches with the decking. If you've got that much clearance to the ground, you can build it that way. You may say, how do you build the seven inch off the ground deck? We do what we call single plane. Rather than have the joist sit on top, it goes into the side and then another one goes out the other side like that. The distance of those footings apart, if you can reuse the ones that are there, is dictated by the size of that girder, the size of that beam. The bigger it is, the further apart they can be. General rule of thumb would be um, the, uh, the uh, height of the board, height, excuse me, the, the height of the beam less a couple inches. So if I've got a four by 10, I don't want to go more than eight feet between my footers. If I've got a four by six, four feet five feet, somewhere in there. But again, there are span charts, you can look them up online. You guys used to have some here that will tell you that combination, the size of your beam, the distance of the footers, how many beams you have. The middle beam is carrying more weight than an end beam would be. So that's, on a low level deck, not that important. You can put as much support or anything as possible. Upper decks, now you have to start getting engineering involved. <laughs> yeah. um, one final thing, I know I'm running out of time. I was talking about designing decks. I talked about height off the ground. The next most important thing we look at is egress, how we're going to come onto the deck and go off of the deck. We want to define our traffic lanes. We don't want a traffic lane cutting right through where we're going to have some furniture, so we don't have to go around the furniture. So when you're designing the deck, design your egress either off to the side or you can come out the door and go along the wall. 
uh, or have a, a bumped out area for your dining table and have your traffic lane going the other way. Again, stay away from where you have your furniture. Size wise goes, the magic number for table and chairs is 12 feet depth. 12 feet out from the house, we consider to be a minimum to accommodate tables and chairs. Anything more is great, anything less might be a little tight. Um, do you have a question? You continue, I'll ask you later. Um, and then finally, as I said, height off the ground defines railings and whatnot. Low level decks, if you put railings on them, especially you have vertical definition like a lot of trees behind it, make the deck feel smaller. So if you can get away without railings on a low level deck, I would recommend it. And plus, you're going to save some money. Yeah. Uh, are you finished with your design stuff? I don't know. I'll think of something else. Right. So we had the opportunity to go to our local home show in Everett, and we got to see Trex and Azek and um, Wolf and Decorator. Mm -hmm. Is Decorator overkill? We like a color in each of the brands, and we're leaning towards the Decorator. Uh, is that overkill? No. It's just the one you like the look of. Because believe me, folks, it's permanent. The deck will be there when the house goes and down. That's, we just retired. This is our last deck. Last deck. This is it. Understood. Deck Understood. Yeah. 25 years. We yeah. That's what we want. All right. Let's open it up for questions about, I didn't really go deep into design, but if you got any questions about what you should look at when you're designing deck, I'll answer those. We've got software. There's lots and lots and lots. Lots and lots of software. software. Yeah, it's very fun. Mm -hmm. Is there one out there for someone who uh, is tech savvy that wants to be able to get in there and start using it for everything. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of them. Uh, one's called Soft Plan, I think is, is pretty good. Uh, you're probably doing one deck. Professionals, we will use the far more intense software because we're doing it over and over again. <coughs> I wouldn't spend more than 50, 60 bucks on some software to help you design the deck. <coughs> Pardon me, a lot of websites, manufacturers' websites actually have software on them that you can go and sign in and design your deck with their software, which is really good. Print off the material list, print off the plans, it'll do the framing plan for you, the whole bit. So I think most all websites have that now, am I right? <coughs> little SketchUp, yeah. That's a lighter version of the original SketchUp, I think. Yes. Mm -hmm. It won't affect the deck. What you'll want to do is put a hatch there so that you can clean that out if you never you ever need to get to it. Better solution is reroute it to another location. If you can, we, can, we have access. We would have access. Oh, okay. <coughs> as long as you have access to get to that outlet. Shouldn't. No, not, not a dryer. No, I've got my vent blows right down on that far from the deck. Blows right. Never seen anything. Um, Vents, house vents that allow airflow into the crawl space. Usually those are just below floor level, which means they're just below deck level. So you have to frame around those, but you can just deck right over the top. There's still airflow through the deck into the vents. Now, if you did a waterproof deck, solid surface deck, different story. But almost never do you see a waterproof deck that low to the ground. About the ground underneath. We're going to have a low level deck. Mm -hmm. What should you put down? As, as you're walking out of the house, we're going to have to probably dig some dirt to make that seven inches. I don't recommend underground decks. The better solution is, is, is the problem because the door is so low? No. Or the ground slopes up? It was a brand new build and it was originally designed to have a concrete patio. Gotcha. We didn't want a concrete patio. We wanted a deck. So we right. had them not put the concrete patio in. Gotcha. Just leave it as it is. We'll deal with it. So, and, and the ground does slope away. It falls away. It falls away from okay. the house. Okay. Because just as you're walking out, it's right. real short. Okay. Then, then you're fine. Yeah, I, I thought the, if the ground went up and you were going to excavate out here and your deck is underground, basically, you have to do a retaining wall and you got issues. The other thing you want to check on, and I, I should mention this, low, low ground level decks like that, you probably want to lean towards a PVC board. Uh, most of the manufacturers of the encapsulated composite don't recommend their board that close to the ground. Some of them do, some of them don't. But the PVC boards are great because there's no wood involved in them. And there's a lot of moisture down there. 
Low-level low, low level decks, you know, we don't do anything. Uh, we know that it's not going to get enough sunlight for anything to grow underneath there. We do recommend, again, around the perimeter of the deck, you remove the sod, do a planting bed so you can mow. You don't have to mow right up against the deck. But you can put down anything you want. You put ground cover. Don't like visqueen. You don't like anything that's going to hold water. Why? We get mosquitoes in the summertime. And if you've got something holding water underneath your deck, you probably have some mosquitoes eventually. So get the ground cover that allows moisture to go through, but weeds not to come up. You can put gravel, pea gravel, whatever you want, or you don't really have to do a thing. Until you get that high off the ground, now you're going to get enough sunlight coming in there for stuff to grow. Anything else? Great. Thanks for your time. I'm going to hang around for a while. If anyone has questions, 